We're in 1 Peter chapter 1. We just started a new series on Peter last week, and we looked at the first two verses. And this morning, we're looking at chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. So with that in mind, Christian, hear the word of the Lord to us out of 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Friends, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our Lord will remain forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and let's pray as you keep that Bible open in your lap in front of you. Uh, Father, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning, that we would know what it means to be a sojourner in this life, citizens of Zion, citizens of your kingdom. And Lord, that you would give us a strategy to experience living hope this week, today, in the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. As we go into uh, our sermon this morning on living hope, what a beautiful concept. Uh, But as we think about living hope, I do have a question. And, uh, you know, we're that kind of church. You can say things out loud. If you're comfortable, you can. If you don't say things out loud, other people don't talk out loud too. That's cool. Whatever you want to do is cool. But I have a question. So you can either say yes or no or just go, hmm, like that, whichever you prefer. Uh, The question is, are are you personally, not y'all, plural, you singular, are you personally a strategic thinker? You know, do you like strategy games? You know, I I have a 10-year-old, and I don't know from whom she received it, but she is so good at strategy games. She's beaten me in every game for the last three years. I don't get it, but something about her brain is just strategic. You know, do you have, like, you ever play board games with your family, and you've got that one family member who's, like, not in it to have fun? They're in it to destroy you? You know, and like your misery is their like schadenfreude, you know, their enjoyment in your misery because what do they want to do? They see the beauty in a strategy, you know, you know, that, you know, you, you know your spouse is so calculating, right? You know, all that, the stuff that drives us crazy, you know, are you a strategic thinker like that? You know, if you're not into strategy games, you know, um, I know a lot of us, you know, we're just so extroverted. We can't help ourselves. You know, it's like we strategically think about how we're going to avoid everybody at Costco. Anyone, when you pull into Costco and you're driving and you're like, oh, this world is so beautiful. I'm looking at the mountains. And then you're like, oh, dear Lord, humanity, right? (laughs) And in a parking lot, they're everywhere. How are there so many people, right? And then you walk in and you're like, okay, get with it. What's our strategy? We're going to turn right we're going to go down that aisle. We're going to go in the cold section. We're not going to stay very long. We're going to hang a hard left, and then we're going to get out as fast as we can. You know, does anyone ever strategically think about how to get in and out of Costco? Anyone do that? Husbands are like, what are we talking about? Or is that we go grocery? We have to think about it, you know? When I think about how husbands strategically think, probably the most strategic thinking a husband does all week is during the sermon. 
You know why? Because the, the husbands in pews, you know what you're thinking of? How do I get out of church the quickest before my wife starts talking to everybody? Anybody do that? Like you're sitting halfway through the, like, all right, what's my exit strategy? Okay, do I have to stay for the closing song? All right, do I, can I just book it out of that door as quickly as possible into my car so I can catch the Seahawks game? Anybody? That doesn't apply to anybody here? Great. We're not that kind of church, apparently, which is awesome, right? But, you know, we're strategic thinkers, right? And, of course, having a strategy is a, is a good thing, right? God gave you and me minds for a reason, right? We're not supposed to check our minds at the door anywhere we go. God gave you a mind. He wants you to use it strategically in a sense, right? Uh, you know, and so when I think about what it means for us to have a living hope, and particularly why I'm having us read through 1 Peter right now, is because I want to suggest to you that 1 Peter gives Christians a strategy for how to live in this life for the sake of the gospel in a world that opposes God's truth and his authority and his grace. We live in a world as sojourners. You know, that was last week's sermon, a sojourner, somebody who lives in this world, but it's not really their home. So how are we supposed to live uh, between our lives today and Christ's return or our death? Is there any strategy? Is there any plan? Are we just sort of biding our time? Well, Martin Luther, you know, the great German reformer and Augustinian monk, uh, Martin Luther said once that if you want to understand Scripture, if you want to understand the Bible, he recommended three books. He said, if you read these three books, this is the primer, the beginning of understanding God's Word. Anyone want to take a guess what those three were? It was Romans, the Gospel of John, and what else? First Peter, right? <laughs> great. Right? And I think what Luther was getting at is Romans explains the gospel of grace, that all we like sheep have gone astray, that all of us are sinners in need of forgiveness. And the way that we are made right with God is through faith in Christ alone. It's the gospel. It's for Jew and Gentile. It's for all humanity, right? If you want to understand the gospel of grace, read the book of Romans. If you want to see the beauty of who God is, who is God? What is he like? You need to see him in the face of Jesus Christ. And so read the gospel of John. But if you want to know what the strategy is for Christians to live in a world as sojourners, as people who know this life is not really our permanent home, uh, for people who know that we have no abiding city here, but we seek the city that is to come, 1 Peter is the strategy. 1 Peter is the way and the how that you and I get through life. And we particularly need it right now because life is, has a lot of unrest. Uh, there's a lot of struggle going on in our lives. Uh, for many of us, we are scared to let everybody know that we're Christians. We know that the world opposes God's truth. Uh, so how are we supposed to live as lights in a world that doesn't really want to see the light? Well, Martin Luther would say, read three books, Romans, John, 1 Peter. And thankfully for a lot of us, we just read through the Gospel of John over the last year, and now we're into 1 Peter, the strategy that's going to give you and me a way to live in this world, right? So what's our strategy? Well, uh, our strategy very simply, is really, that's going to be a grid for probably the next several weeks in 1 Peter. But today, part of our strategy, what I want you to grasp is our strategy is to live in the living hope that we have. We are called to live and to know and understand that you and I have living hope. Uh, not hope that disappoints. Uh, not hope like, I hope I get out of Costco quickly. Hope in the sense that I know it's going to happen. 
that God is going to get me through anything. And at the end of everything, Jesus will return and Jesus will win. That's the living hope that we have. And of course, Peter, right, the guy who's writing this, is not writing to Christians who have an easy life, who get moral credit for being a Christian, who get respect in society for professing that Jesus is the only way to God. He's talking to people who are ostracized and socially rejected for their faith. Uh, Peter says you're going to be insulted, you're going to be rejected, you're going to be maligned, but here's how you live. Here's the strategy. Here's how you do it. You know the beauty of God. You've come to believe in Jesus as Lord. You know what the gospel is. Here's how you put it into action. And this is particularly important for Peter uh, because as we know from Peter's life, shortly after Peter writes First and Second Peter, after he writes these two short letters to Christians, giving them a strategy. What happens to Peter? Well, Peter, if you know church history, is martyred. He's killed for his faith by Emperor Nero in AD 64. It's that same persecution of Christians that led to the Apostle Paul being killed. So if you place yourself in the time of Peter's writing, you know, we have Christians who are scattered all throughout sort of the Middle East, right? We've got them all over Asia Minor, right? Modern-day Turkey. They're socially rejected, and they're about to enter a deep persecution where Peter himself and Paul are killed. I mean, could you imagine being a Christian during this time? How are we supposed to move forward when Peter and Paul are both dead? What are we supposed to do now? Well, that sense of urgency, what's the strategy? What's the plan? That's why Peter wrote this book. And it's God's timeless, inerrant, fully true word. And it's timeless. It's for us today, and it was for Peter's audience as well. It gives us the path forward. The church needed it when Peter was passing away and after he was gone, and we need it today. So what's the strategy? Well, it's all about living hope, right? So let's talk about living hope for a second. What does it mean that uh, Paul talks about you and I have a, have a living hope, right? Why does he have to say living hope? Well, I think when you and I think about hope, we, there's a bunch of ways we could go in the direction for hope, right? Like, anyone ever say, like, I, I, you know, I hope I get to go to Hawaii? You know, anyone ever say that? Well, I guess, like, everybody's already been to Hawaii, except for, like, me, I guess. <laughs> or you hate Hawaii. But a lot of us, you know, I hope to go to Hawaii, or I hope to retire, or I, or I hope I get into this college one day, or I hope to have this career, right? Hope can sometimes mean possibility, right? Like, I hope to go there. Uh, but that's not really the hope that... Peter's talking about, is it? You know, another kind of hope that you and I have is we have hope in leaders, right? I, I hope my candidate won this past week, or I hope my candidate wins, or I hope this happens politically, right? We have that kind of hope. But what does the Bible say about our ultimate hope? Well, Psalm 146 puts it this way, put not your trust in princes, in any son of man in whom there is no salvation, because when his breath departs, he returns to the earth and on that very day, he perishes, and so do his plans. But blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord our God. You know, Psalm 27 says it this way, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in what? The name of the Lord our God. We have a living hope. And we're not just hoping for the possibility of a righteous leader. We're not just hoping for the possibility of things in our life. You and I, we ground our strategy in a living hope, a real hope that Jesus is alive. 
Jesus is the living hope. I know that one day Jesus is going to return and make all things new. Every cry for justice your heart has ever made, any desire for righteousness is ultimately a cry that Jesus, the King, would return and bring the kingdom of God to earth. It's a cry for the justice of God to come to bear. It's a cry that Jesus would finally sit in Jerusalem and reign. He's already been inaugurated. He's already defeated the evil powers and the demonic forces of this world, but we await the return of the king, right? This is why you get so excited in movie three of the Lord of the Rings, right? It's the return of the king. What was Tolkien stirring up within us? A desire that the righteous king would come and vanquish the forces of evil, that he would defeat Mordor once and for all, right? Tolkien was, of course, a believer and was tapping into every human heart's desire for the return of the king. And he's alive. He's not just mythically alive in our hearts. He has flesh and blood, and he's coming again. That's what it means to believe in the resurrection of Christ. It means Jesus has won, he will win, and he will consummate all things when he returns. It gives you a different perspective on life, and yeah, it gives you a different strategy for how to live in this world. It's a living hope. So what does that living hope really look like? Well, I think our passage is going to give us an example. Okay, so how does that work out in our life? What does that do in me? Well, look at verse 3 with me, and I'll give you an example of sort of what this does to somebody who really believes Jesus is alive, because Peter, of course, has seen Jesus alive. Remember, after the resurrection, they took that walk on the beach, right? So what does it mean that you and I live in living hope? What's part of our strategy? Well, the first thing you need to recognize is that we are called to bless God, bless God today, every day. What does Peter want them to do? He says right there in verse three, he says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he's talking to people who are being persecuted and socially ostracized. And he doesn't say, oh, wow, let's, oh, I must empathize with you. Things are so hard. He does empathize and go there. But the first thing he says to Christians is, number one, first step of living in living hope, bless God today. Praise him today. Well, what does it mean that we're supposed to bless God, right? Why does he say, blessed be the God and Father? Blessing, aren't aren't we blessed by God? How can I bless God? He's created everything. Well, to understand that, you have to understand that blessing in this sense really means praise, Right? Because we understand that we don't really give anything to God of value. Right, God gives us everything. Right, Even faith, our faith is a gift from God. But we bless God in the sense that we declare that he is worth all of our praise, all of our honor, all of our full-throated adoration. Right? We bless his name. We want people to honor it and to regard it. Right? And so that's what it means. It means to praise God today, right? So whether or not your candidate won, whether or not you have good health or bad health, whether or not you have a job right now or not, as a believer, every day we are called to bless the name of the Lord. You know, I know that's, that, is, that can be very challenging, and I know it's ironic, right? Uh, but think about this. Like, you know, you know like when, you know how like you're always tired, you know, you know like, aren't you always tired? Are you anything like me? Like every day, I'm like at five o'clock, I'm so tired. I just want to go to sleep. And now the sun is gone forever. It's cloudy. And I just, it's like the sun goes down and I'm like, let's just end the day. Just end the day. Let's just go to sleep, right? The irony is when we're discouraged and we're downtrodden, what are we actually supposed to do? We should actually get up and go on like a 15 minute walk, right? That's the irony. When we're downcast and we're tired, 
we want to like hunker down in our beds and just turn on the news or whatever. But the irony is that we're actually supposed to do what? We're supposed to get up and walk around, right? The irony is that when you and I are discouraged, when you and I are being persecuted, right? When you and I are being uh, affected by anything in this world, the, the, ten, the natural tendency is for us to become inward, right? But what Peter's saying is, you're, even though that's your natural tendency, you got to turn that around. You need to bless God today. Blessed be, that's the first thing I want you to know. Blessed be God today. Not tomorrow, not six months from now, not four years from now, today. I mean, this is how the saints of old always thought. You know, the great story of Job, the man who lost everything. You can read about him in the Old Testament. Job lost everything. I'd be shocked if anyone here has ever suffered as much as Job. He lost his children. He lost his wealth. He lost his income. He lost his health. And in Job chapter 1, when he's lost everything, what does Job say? Well, in Job 1.20, he says this. He says, Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground, and did what? Worshipped. He worshipped. And Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Uh, friends, there is power when we, you and I are downcast and discouraged, there is real power, instead of hunkering down, to flip it around and say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, to me, this, this hit home to me when my wife and I had our first miscarriage, our first and only. And if you've ever been through a miscarriage, it's a very strange grieving time because you're not sure what to do with the remains. Do you bury it? Do you give it a funeral? But I remember when we lost the child, we said, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. You know, another way of saying it, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good, especially today. His mercies are new every morning. Friends, part of your strategy of having living hope is to praise the name of the Lord regardless of what's going on in your life or our country. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Next part of the strategy in verse 3, he goes on and he says, according to God's great mercy, his covenant faithfulness, his chezev, if you're speaking Hebrew, his steadfast love. You got to drink milk if you want to say that correctly. <laughs> according to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, what we need to do, Christian, part of the strategy is to get our minds off of all of our struggles sometime and the things that could be frustrating us. You know, we need to shift what our minds are thinking about and focus on the mercy of God, the mercy of God, his faithfulness to us, his forgiveness of all of our sins in Christ. I mean, part of the strategy, friends, is you've got to give your mind a different mental picture, right? You've got to be concentrating on something else, right? Uh, not that you ignore everything going on in the world. I'm not suggesting that. What I am suggesting is that sometimes you need to shift your mental thinking and focus on the Lord. I mean, um, I mean, have you ever been? Has anyone ever been homesick? You know, you know that sense of homesickness. You know, uh, years ago, I was a I was a camp counselor, 
And it was great. I loved being a camp counselor, except the worst part, the worst part was when the, the campers would do what? Anyone know? Anyone take a guess? The worst part of being a camp counselor is when the kids would pee all over themselves in the middle of the night, right? And then what would they do? They would hide it. I mean, what a picture of our sin, right? These kids, they would pee on themselves, and then in the middle of the night, they'd hide in their corner, and then eventually there'd be like 14 pairs of underwear, you know, like just stinking in the corner because they didn't want to, you know, own up to anything, you know? And so we would have these kids, you know, they were homesick, right? And they were embarrassed to talk about it. And they didn't want to open up and reveal what's really going on because they were homesick and they didn't want to seem weak or anything. But, you know, what was the greatest cure? I mean, could, can you talk a kid out of being homesick? You know, can you reason with a child not to be homesick? No, what do you do? What's the only cure for homesickness? You distract them with a the game. <laughs> Let's go play kickball. You know, unleash your wrath against your other campers, right? Let's go play some games, Right? Uh, for, for if that works for a kid, friends, yeah, I'm not suggesting you and I were children, right? But for many of us, we can get so caught up in the world and what's going on, and I think we can forget that actually we should be thinking more about the Lord, more about his mission in our life, and more about his mercy. And what may happen is we actually may just start to see things a little differently. Our strategy may change a little bit if we think about God's mercy more often. All right, so part of his strategy is to think about his mercy, is to praise him, or as the Bible will say, bless his name. All right, another part of the strategy, keeping going, all right, of course, is to remember that you and I have a living hope, right? See in verse 3, you and I have a living hope, right? Like we've talked about, it's not a dead hope. It's not a hope in a person. It's not a hope in a possibility. It is a living hope because Jesus really did come back from the dead. That's what the resurrection means. And of course, we are born again. Notice that that's exactly Peter's words right there in verse 3, that we are born again to a living hope. Right, so what, what does that mean? What does it mean that we're born again? Well, it means that when we profess Jesus as our Savior, we confess Him as Lord, we're made new people. We have a spiritual change. We have a, our heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh, that we have new desires. We want to bring Him glory. We recognize that we only deserve hell and punishment but Christ Jesus received God's wrath on our behalf. And so we're humbled and we're deeply thankful. We're different people. And we don't look down on other sinners. We empathize with them because we think that was me until Christ changed my life. Is Christ calling you to join his family? I mean, this is what it means to be a believer, to be born again. You desire to live righteously, not because you, know, you want to earn God's favor or earn some kind of blessing from God. You're righteous because you want to be righteous, because you want to be like Jesus, because he's made you new. It's a totally different perspective on life. You want to be purified even in the midst of trials so that you could come out more and more like pure gold, like pure more and more in the image of Jesus, right? You want to sound more like Jesus, you want to forgive like Jesus. You want to talk like he does. You want to represent him no matter where you are. I mean, that's what the Holy Spirit does when he dwells within you. And of course, born again, I mean, that's an that's a Old Testament idea. You know, in Psalm 87, which we read several weeks ago in the Ephraim Co-op, if you're joining us for that devotional time, Psalm 87 is one of my favorite psalms because it talks about one day, all of these different people from all these different ethnicities, from places like Babylon, you know, all these wretched nations, right, who don't worship the Lord. One day, one day, the Old Testament says, all of these random people from all these different people groups will one day be born 
citizens of Zion. It says, this one will be say, she was born there. He was born in Zion. And what the Old Testament was looking forward to was the day that people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue could say that they rightly are born again, not with flesh and blood, but born into God's kingdom. Zion, the reign of Jesus, the anointed king. So when you and I are born again, we become born into a new kingdom. We are citizens of God's family and of his kingdom, right? That's part of why we always live sort of in tension with our life today. At our core, we are not citizens of this world. We're citizens of God's kingdom. We have different values. We bow to one ultimate true king, Jesus, our Lord. I mean, you know why the New Testament is always saying Jesus is Lord? It's because during Peter's lifetime, you were supposed to say, Caesar is Lord. Did you know that? In the ancient world, no matter what your religion was, no matter who you worshiped, no matter how many gods you worshiped, in the ancient world, once a year, you were supposed to go into one of the Roman temples, offer incense up to Caesar, and say, Caesar is Lord. And as long as you bowed the knee to that cultural expectation, they didn't even expect you to believe it. You just have to say it. Just say that you agree. Just go along with culture. Say, Caesar is Lord. Offer him incense once a year. Capitulate your faith. And then we'll leave you alone 364 days of the year. But what did Christians do? How did Christians respond to that? They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't capitulate to the world. You know what? They had the audacity to say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. I'm not going to offer incense to anybody but him. Hence, the persecution. Hence, the dislike of Christians. Why can't you just go along with the flow of the world, keep your faith to yourself, just get in with the world once a year, just go along with it? And Christians said, no, Jesus is Lord. He is my king. How can I deny him? See, friends, we have a lot to learn from Peter and from his word and from Christians of old. We are sojourners in this life. We're resident aliens. We don't quite fit in this world. I mean, no matter how much you and I may love Southern Oregon and the Rogue Valley, you know, all the fun things we get to do here, ultimately you and I are citizens of God's kingdom. We represent him. So what else is part of the strategy? Well, uh, verse 4 Peter goes on, he talks about how we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, right? We have a living inheritance kept in heaven for us, right? We, we know that death is a door that you and I are just going to burst right through, that we have eternal life because of Jesus, right? We need to sort of elevate our thinking. I mean, I think for so many of us today, the idea of a spiritual realm, a spiritual world is so hard for us to comprehend. But friends, it's a reality, you, what you and I see is not everything. Just like we don't see gravity, we see its effects. We live in a world that is imbued with spiritual realities, right? We have a place called heaven. We don't know where it is, right? It's up there somewhere, right? That's how they would talk about it. It's, we know there's a realm that is guaranteed to be there for us. And in heaven, we are kept safe so that when you and I die, that, that weird part of you that can't be quantified in your organs or your skin or in your brain, that weird part, that spiritual part of you, will go on living forever in heaven. And that is without a doubt true because Jesus is back from the dead. <laughs> Jesus makes impossible things possible. Let's keep going. He goes on and he says, uh, verse 5, he says, uh, who, this is talking about you, he's talking to the Christians, right? You and me. He says, you, by God's power, 
are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Right? He's talking about Christ's return. But notice right there what I want you to recognize in verse 5 is he says, you or who by God's power are being guarded. And friends, what I love so much about that is to recognize that the way that you and I operate in this world is not based on our own efforts, right? It's not our ability to understand everything and get every single thing right in this world. I mean, who has time to have like the right moral stand on every possible issue facing us? I mean, you know, Soren Kierkegaard, kind of an obscure guy, but Soren Kierkegaard said the number one cause of man's anxiety was the daily newspaper. You know what his point was? His point was the the daily newspaper confronts the individual man with the world's problems and makes him feel a moral burden to explain every moral issue and have a stance on it. When he's just one person, what's he supposed to do? How am I supposed to fix all the, what should be, I don't know, Vietnam's economic policy? You know, I I don't know, right? I don't even know what my family's economic policy should hardly be, right? Confronted with all these issues constantly. But the great news for us, Christian, is not that we have to get every single thing right. We have to have an answer to every question. We have to understand that we are guarded by God for salvation. Our eternity is secure. I just have to obey and trust Jesus. I'm not going to capitulate to culture. I'm not going to go along with the crowd. I'm going to be faithful to Jesus Christ. And he's going to see me through. And I'm guarded by him. I'm not guarded by by my ability to get everything right. (laughs) Goodness, what a burden to place on myself. You know what I need to do? I need to love God and love my neighbor as myself. I need to obey the commandments of Jesus Christ. I need to not go against my conscience, and I need not to deny him. I need to be willing to suffer for the name of Jesus. And God is going to protect me, and God is going to protect you, because we're guarded by his power. Uh, Friends, what a burden that you carry, that Jesus would carry for you. You are protected by his power. Let's keep going. Of course, he goes on and he starts talking about suffering and trials, which is the theme of this whole letter. He says, in this you rejoice, right? You rejoice in your salvation, that all things are carried by God's power for you, right? You can have joy, though now for a little while, if necessary, don't you like how Peter downplays their suffering? <laughs> I've been thinking about that. You know, sometimes when people are going through suffering, you know, we, we want to be, be empathetic, but sometimes we just need to say, hey, sometimes your problems, you're making your problems bigger than they are, right? Keep eternity in mind. You know, Peter, who's about to be martyred for Jesus, says, our suffering is for a little time. It's just for a short while. He says, even though you and I are suffering for a little while, and we are grieved by all different kinds of tests and trials, right? Your trials are not my trials. Your difficulties of your faith are not mine. We have all these different kind of things that are testing our faith, all different kind of rejections that you and I experience. And what are those all doing? Why do we go through these things? Well, verse 7, Peter gives us the strategy for us to understand the suffering that you and I go through and the social rejection we may experience for professing for Christ. You know what he, he says? You've got to reframe your thinking. This is the strategy. You have to see that you are like a block of gold and you are being placed into a furnace so that everything that's not gold is going to melt away. Right? Your trials are meant to make you more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Right? You are like a block of gold thrown into a fiery furnace. Everything that's not gold is going to go away. Right? It's going to become more pure and pure gold. Right? That refiner's fire right? that the Bible talks about. You know, um, when, I, when I think about what it's like to, 
to go through trials. I've mentioned this before, but I just can't get away from how beautiful this image is. And I guess it's beautiful because um, I've gotten to know this guy a little bit in my life. Um, but you know that missionary, Andrew Brunson, who suffered and languished in prison by himself for two years. We, we prayed for him. Every, he's the most prayed for person in human history. Uh, he was delivered from prison a few years ago. Uh, but uh, in, when he was in Turkey, uh, he was arrested for speaking the truth of Jesus Christ in a predominantly Muslim world. His church maybe had 50 people. But he was arrested and thrown in prison for two years. And for those two years, Andrew Brunson prayed and prayed and prayed that God would give him some kind of miraculous sign, right? That God would speak to him, that he would have some kind of, you know, spiritual vision, that something hugely spiritual would happen. And he said, I just need that, and then I can endure anything. I just need like this kind of, I just need to see a miracle, basically. And then I can endure anything. And if you read his book, God's Hostage, Andrew Brunson will share that for two years, what happened? nothing. Not a word, not an impression, not a sound, not a vision, not a thing. And he says it when he prayed, it felt like he was praying to a concrete ceiling. And the day before his eight-hour trial, he finally broke down weeping. And he said, Lord, if you never give me a vision, if you never speak to me, I love you. I just, I love you, Jesus. I've got nothing left. I love you, Jesus. And it was on that cell floor when he had nothing left in the tank that what came out of Andrew Brunson was, I love you, Jesus, no matter what. And he said, that's when he realized what the Lord was doing. He had been put into a fire so that everything but love for Jesus Christ would be gone. And he said, what can man do to me in this trial? I have got nothing and I still love the Lord. And in that moment, he realized his strength was in Christ. And he went to trial and he defended himself. And within a few months, he was released. And friend, I just think about when you and I go through trials, you know, we hate trials. I mean, that's what makes them trials is that they're painful. But they're meant to show you your faith in Christ. That's part of what trials do. They show us, hopefully, that no matter what we are facing, we can declare, I love Jesus Jesus is Lord, no matter what anybody else does to me. I mean, think about using that as your strategy, you know? I mean, what if you lost your job because you dared stand by God's word? Are you ready for that day, Christian? You may. You may lose your job because you stand for God's truth. If you lose your job, can you say, I love you, Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, this is the power of the strategy at work. It's got some teeth to it. Let's finish up. Now, Peter goes on, uh, talking about trials, and he says, Though you don't see Jesus, you love him. Though you don't know now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And <laughs> what I love so much about this is... Um, when Peter's talking, he's talking about the fact that we never have to fear anything in this life. Not even death should make us afraid. I mean, maybe pain can make you and I afraid, but death should not be anything that you and I fear because Jesus has overcome everything. We have salvation. We have eternal life. And what he's trying to get us to see is that's supposed to make us rejoice no matter what this life throws at us or what we're enduring. And what's, what's amazing about this is... Uh, 
You know, he even has the audacity in verse 7 to say that all of these testings, they're going to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Like when Jesus returns, we're going to receive praise and honor and glory. And what's crazy about that is when you and I think about standing before a holy God, right? If you're at all a Christian, if you at all have any humility, you're probably going to be thinking along the lines of like, I don't deserve salvation. I don't deserve honor and glory and praise. I don't deserve any of this. And yet this is who God is. I mean, when Jesus is talking about his return in Matthew 25, when Jesus returns, Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 25, he's going to separate the groups of people. There's going to be sheep and there's going to be goats. And he's going to say to some, enter into the joy of your father for eternity. And to the others, he's going to say, depart from me. And he's going to cast them into hell for eternity. And it's tragic. But you know, if you read Matthew 25, you know what's fascinating? Is he looks at those who turn away from the grace of God. And he says, um, you know, you... You didn't feed me when I was hungry. You didn't clothe me when I was naked. You didn't give me water when I was thirsty. You didn't visit me when I was in prison. But you know what the the goats say? They say, when didn't we do those things? When weren't we righteous? When didn't? Tell us when we weren't righteous. Tell us when we didn't feed you. But you know what the Christian says? Jesus looks at his sheep, his people, and he says, you fed me when I was hungry. You met me in prison when I was lonely. You gave me water to drink. You healed my wounds. And you know what Christians say? They say, Lord, when did we ever do that? When do we ever do anything like that? And Jesus said, when you did it to the least of these, you did it like you were doing it for me. I mean, the amazing thing, Christian, is that when Jesus returns, you and I are going to receive praise and honor and glory. (laughs) That's what Peter wants you to realize Uh, Zephaniah says it this way. He says, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. God will exalt over you with singing. That is what we stand to have at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We don't deserve it. We are going to be giving him all the praise and the glory, but his grace is so powerful. It saves sinners like us, and we are crowned. We are co-heirs with Christ. I mean, who, what God is like this? What God would do this? Except the God of the Bible, who is rich in mercy. Friends, the strategy is we rejoice. We rejoice because we know that day is coming. So, you know, are you a strategic thinker? Do you like strategy? Uh, Friends, don't you know that in Christ we have the winning strategy? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the strength that we have in Christ Jesus. Uh, Father, we pray that we would know our living hope because you are our living hope. You overcame the grave and you are coming again. Father, teach us what it means to see our trials as a fiery furnace, stripping away everything that doesn't reflect your glory. Father, we love you and you are our living hope. Amen.